Colossians 1 this evening. But again, just as a quick reminder, what we're looking at here is um, Paul's prayer for a church that he never had the opportunity to visit. And so, um, in some regards, this is a, a way that we can look at how, what would Paul pray for us today. Um, and it began with him grounding the prayer in thanksgiving, and we saw that in verses 3 through 7, or verses 3 through 8, uh, where he gives thanksgiving for their faith, he gives thanksgiving for love, he then gives thanksgiving for the hope that they have, and then, of course, thanksgiving for the gospel. And so what we're looking at now is the second half of this prayer, where he is giving thanks for what God has done, and now he's praying that God would continue to work, and particularly that that work would be seen in their growth. And so uh, we looked at a couple, uh, probably about a month ago, how there's a call to grow in knowledge. We saw that in verse 9. So actually, let's pick up, we'll read verse 9 through verse 14, and then we'll come back and uh, look at uh, verse 11 in depth today. And so he says in verse 9, and so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with joy or being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, we saw this growth, this prayer for growth and knowledge, that they would be filled with the knowledge of, of who God is, filled with the knowledge of his will, having spiritual wisdom and understanding. We saw that once we have that wisdom and understanding, that knowledge, then we don't just learn for knowledge's sake, but we seek to put that knowledge into action. And so we saw that in verse 10, we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we're to be fully pleasing to him, we're to bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. Now, when, when you read everything that's listed there in verse 10, to some extent, you should feel a little bit overwhelmed. Like, really? Look, look at the terms he uses, all right? Um, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So that first one should blow you out of the water because who here walks truly worthy of the Lord? All right, no one. We all fall short. All the time we're falling short. And yet Paul is praying that we would live lives that please our Savior and our Lord. But then he goes on there with that, um, that we're to bear fruit in the, the, the good works that we're good with. Is that what he says? No, bear fruit in every good work. That, that we're to be involved in and pressing forward in so that the entirety of who we are, the totality of who we are, is producing these good works. And then we're to increase in the knowledge of God. Now, one of the things we know about, one of the questions that we've been talking about uh, regarding the catechism and the, and the Kids for Truth program is the idea of God's infiniteness, that he has no boundaries, that, there's, that you can study him for all eternity and still need the rest of eternity to learn of who he is. 
And yet Paul is saying for us right now, as we're walking on this earth, that we're to increase in the knowledge of God. So walking worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God while we walk on this earth. Does that overwhelm you? It should. It really should. That's a high calling that Paul is giving to us, that he's praying for us. But then we see, and I thank God that Paul put this here, of course, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see that we're called then to grow not just in knowledge, not just in actions, but then he prays for us to grow in strength. Look at verse 11. As we're doing all these things, we are being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And so what we're going to look at this evening is how Paul is praying for the Colossian believers and a prayer that we should be praying for ourselves, we should be praying for other believers. And and I think Paul himself was likely looking forward to how other believers, even today and even beyond our time, would grow in strength. And so we're going to look at particularly verse, just one verse, verse 11, how we're called to grow in strength. Now, the first thing we see is that God's strength is necessary. God's strength is necessary. You cannot walk the Christian life. You cannot do what you've been called to do by God's grace apart from God's power. In fact, one of the most fundamental aspects of the Christian faith is that we cannot do anything apart from God's grace. Our salvation, our entrance into God's kingdom comes fully and completely by the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of who? Not of who? Yourself. So it's no wonder then that the, that the very thing that places us at conversion into the family of God is also the very thing we need to live our lives before the Lord. God's grace takes on many forms, but one particular reality, one particular way and necessity of grace is found in the gracious strength that God gives us. I also think it's also one of the biggest blind spots that we as Christians have and struggle with as we walk our lives before the Lord. We often think that God saves us by his grace, but then we have to keep ourselves saved. Or that we, if in, in order for us to continue to be right with the Lord, we're the ones who have to produce these things. Now, I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying that we don't have a responsibility to respond and, and to do and to obey. That's absolutely clear. But when we respond, when we do, when we obey, is it our strength or is it God's strength at work? And it's the Lord's strength at work. And that is what Paul is praying here. We cannot accomplish anything apart from God's strength, yet we so often lean on our own strength. I think we, we look at many people who struggle and, and deal with, deal with uh, besetting sins. They struggle with their, their faith. They struggle with doubts, and, and, and they just struggle in the Christian life. And I think many times one of the root causes of that is the fact that believers are depending on themselves. They're trying to plow, plod through and plow their way through the Christian life without a complete and full 
dependence on God. And again, the reminder of the things that Paul is praying for the Colossian believers to exhibit. Fully pleasing, fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. As, as Paul says elsewhere, who is sufficient for these things? Like God calls us to that which we cannot accomplish on our own. No one can accomplish growth in action like we saw a couple weeks ago apart from the strength of God. And that's why Paul immediately follows up his prayer for us to grow in actions with a prayer for us to have the power necessary. Without the power of God, action will never come. We see this in Psalm 28. Psalm 28, 7 through 8. The Lord is my what? Strength. The Lord is my strength. I'm not my strength. Yahweh is my strength. And him my heart trusts, and I am what? Helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. So the psalmist makes it abundantly clear. How is he going to go about and find the help necessary to please the Lord? He has to depend on. On God's strength. Jeremiah puts it another way. He puts it in the opposite way, in the negative sense. What happens to someone who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength? He's what? Cursed. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And when you do that, when you trust in yourself, when you look to your own strength, what are you actually doing? You are turning not to the Lord, but you're turning away from the Lord. It's interesting that Jeremiah speaks about this being a curse. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Ultimately, when we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, who were they trusting? Themselves. They they were the ones, Eve was looking and she made the decisions about the fruit. She, She determined that it was desired to make one wise, that it was good for food. She rejected what God had said. And so in, in turning from God, she was following her own understanding. She was leaning on her own strength. You know, I... It's interesting, again, that Jeremiah says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. I can think of nothing so pathetic as a cursed man trying to keep God's requirements in his own strength. That that itself, the actual activity of trying to live for God by depending on yourself, that's a curse in and of itself. Because what will you learn over and over again? Your failure. You'll learn over and over again that your strength is not enough. We see this in the New Testament. Ephesians 6.10, this is the the very famous, well-known armor of God passage. How does Paul begin that passage? Be strong in what? The Lord. And in the strength of his might. I I think what's what's always always been um, a point that that I always see when I read through this passage is the armor that God gives. And all of the armor, except for one piece, is all defensive. The helmet, the belt, shoes prepared with the gospel, the shield 
of faith, the breastplate of righteousness. Like, like all of those different things are not meant to be offensive weapons. There's only one offensive weapon, and that is what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And again, where it's, it's not in our ability to wield the sword that we find victory, but rather it's just in the power inherent or inherent in the word of God. That's where we see that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It is that which cuts to the dividing of the soul and marrow that is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of man's heart. That's what God's word just does. So when we're called and recognized that we're engaged in spiritual battle, the first thing that Paul calls us to do is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then again, he reminds the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, we are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Paul makes it abundantly clear. Where does his power reside? Not in himself. And this, this is something I think we're going to look at. I'm getting a little ahead of myself because uh, we're going to look at this at some point in Second Peter. But in, in Second Peter, it, it talks about how, um, how we have a, a similar faith or a like precious faith as Peter himself. Now, if, if you think about like, you know, heroes of the faith or whatever, I'm sure at some point somewhere on the list, Peter comes down. Yes, he was obnoxious. Yes, he was sticking his foot in his mouth. Yes, he was, he was brash. Yes, he was probably a lot more similar to a lot of us than we'd like to admit. But yet God used him in amazing ways. He preached at Pentecost and thousands came to Christ. He was pivotal in the founding of, of the church and following those who were going the way of the Lord. I mean, there was so much that Peter was used by God to do. And then he comes in his epistle and says... You have the same faith that I have. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, the sufficiency is not from myself. The power that resided in Paul and resided in Peter is the same power that we have available to us by God's grace. So the things that they accomplished, can they not also be accomplished by us? Yes, to the glory of God they can. And so... Nothing is accomplished apart from finding our sufficiency from God. Everything, everything that we seek to do comes from his sufficiency, not our own. God's strength is necessary. And, and this, this is a reality that we need to remind ourselves of every single day. There's a... I can't remember who said it, but he often said, preach the gospel to yourself daily. The gospel begins with telling you that you aren't enough. The gospel begins by showing you that your righteousness is a filthy rag and cannot earn favor with God. That's where the gospel begins. Now, how does that translate after we've come to faith in Christ? Well, are we anything Apart from, our, apart from Christ, are we anything? And the answer is no. 
And so we have to cast off any type of idea or any type of concept that I am going to live the Christian life on my own strength, in my own power. That I'm going to fight sin by myself. That I'm going to change myself. We have to cast ourselves completely in dependence on the power of God. And apart from that, we will never be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We'll never be able to fully please Him. We'll never be able to bear fruit in every good work. We must be strengthened with His power. So God's strength is necessary. And that's, that's great. We could close up here and, and that would be a wonderful truth to leave here with. But Paul goes in and now describes the strength that we need this necessary strength, what is it like? We see, first of all, this strength is sufficient. Paul is going to speak of both the quantity and the quality of the strength that God gives us. Look again what he says in verse 11. Being strengthened with how much power? All power. We see that there is, first of all, a sufficient quantity of God's power. It is all power. It is a sufficient source. It is unending. Now, this is striking what Paul is saying. It's a, what Paul is saying is that he's praying that believers would have access to an unending source of power for everything that they face. That every bit of power that exists derives from God. So when he says all power that we'd be strengthened with all power, he's saying that the source of all power is the one who's feeding this to us. So think about powerful things, all right? Um, what are some powerful things you can think of? Give me some examples. A nuclear bomb, all right? Uh, and this is, this is amazing. So who, who created um, the atom? God did, all right? And the atom is so small that we can't even see it. Right? We, we, with our naked eye. We need a microscope to get down and, and to see it. And we need a really powerful microscope to see it. And so you would think of something that is so small, how can it have so much power? Yet when we split it in half, what happens? Boom! Where, where does that power derive from? What other explanation can there be than an almighty God is the one who put that power there? What else has a lot of power? I feel like Tim, Tim the tool man Taylor, more power. You know? Lightning bolt, all right? A lightning bolt, it burns at incredible temperatures. It has incredible force in it, and it'll bring down um, trees with, like it's no big deal. Hurricanes, tornadoes, I mean, immense weather events that have just immense power. How about water? You understand how powerful water is? How destructive it can be? What about the sun? I'm going to think about power. The sun is so powerful that we can buy panels that will actually absorb the sun's power and we can use it as electricity. And it just keeps going. It's an, a completely renewable resource from that perspective. How many... Billions, trillions, sextillion stars are there in the universe. So this universe is created with unimaginable power. And Paul is saying, listen, you have 
the ability by looking to the Lord to be strengthened with the source of all that power. Is that not sufficient? We will, God will never run out. There is no other repository or power source in which we might find power. We will never run out of what is needed to do what God commands us to do. To walk worthy of him. To bear fruit. To grow in the knowledge of him. You know, one thing that's been, I think, illustrated recently about the fact of our society is that we have limited power resources. Um, I don't know if you remember, it was a couple years ago, I think there were these, or maybe it was last year, but in these, these really extremely hot summers in Texas, what started happening? Blackouts. All right? Like, we didn't have a sufficient amount of power to run all the ACs that are running down there. This has also happened in California, where they've had to have purposeful blackouts because the power grid that we that was drawing that, it's a finite thing. Now, th- this is like one of those things that's sort of odd because we don't really, you know, we'll have occasional blackouts, but it's not because we ran out of power. It's because the, the lines got knocked down or something like that. But there literally wasn't enough power to, to power things. That will never happen in our spiritual lives. There are no power blackouts when we look to the power of God to strengthen us to do what he calls us to do. There is sufficient quantity in the power that God gives us. But that quantity is also of sufficient quality. Notice what he says. Again, bearing or being strengthened with all power, and that power is according to his what? Glorious might. His glorious might. What is Paul saying here? He's speaking of the power of God, that it is of the best quality. It is of what it is of sufficient quality for us. It's not that we have a trickle of power. It's not that that we will ever face a circumstance in life where we will throw the breaker on God's power. You know what happens when a breaker gets thrown? The draw is too much and it flips the breaker and that that doesn't work anymore. Um, God will always provide what is necessary for the call he has given us. You know, I I know we've addressed this before here, but I think it it bears repeating. There's the age-old lie... God will never give you more than you can handle, all right? That's not true, is it? God will often give us more than we can handle. But when he does that, he then provides power in himself to handle it. I mean, the call that we saw in verse 10 is far above our abilities. Who is sufficient for these things? We can't do this. But he provides an abundant supply of sufficient power to do what he has called us to do. God's power is enough. It is sufficient. We see this particularly in Psalm 78.4. Psalm 78 um, speaks and recounts three really significant things throughout this psalm. It, It is a recounting of Israel's history. And it speaks of the weakness of men in sinful actions. Israel did that again and again and again. It speaks of how God responded to sinful men with mercy and grace. 
And then it speaks of the mighty works of God that display his glory. What's amazing, like we saw the film on Saturday with Moses. I mean, is not God's power clearly displayed in the plagues that he sent upon Egypt? And, and notice that happens not just simply to get Pharaoh to release the Israelites, although that is a, a result, but God says he does it to show Pharaoh God's glory. That his power is exhibited in these ways so that God would receive glory. We have to recognize God does not provide his power so that we would merely obey him. He does not provide his power so that we would simply make it through life's trials. He provides his power so we would glorify him. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He says, look, I'm going to tell my children of Israel's history. I'm going to tell them how we were stupid and we rebelled against the Lord. I'll tell it to the coming generation. And the whole point of it is that I'm telling them of the glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might. And the wonders that he has done. We have to understand that when we accomplish something, when we walk pleasing to the Lord, when we bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God, it is a testament to his glory, not ours. When we exhibit the things that Paul is asking and praying for us to act upon, that is the glory of God. And we should give glory to God. When that happens. Ephesians 1. Paul takes this up as well. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. For a purpose. That we should be holy and blameless before him. What does that sound like in comparison to Colossians chapter 1? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. How does God accomplish this? Well, through his love, in his love, he predestines us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, so that it would bring about the praise of his glorious grace. And that glorious grace has brought us to a point where we are what? Blessed in Christ, who is the beloved. So God's strength is sufficient. I think one way to think about this and particularly to recognize that God will always provide this grace that's sufficient. There is one thing that God, well, there are many things that God is zealous for, but there is one thing that God is zealous for, if we can say it this way, above all else, and that is his glory. He does not share glory with anyone. He does not permit that he would be less glorified. Those who do not glorify him as God, they're under his wrath. He will deal with them in his justice. God is supremely concerned with his glory. And if his power is made available to us for the sake of his glory, then because God is so concerned for his glory, will he ever diminish what is necessary for us to glorify him? No. So when Paul says that we're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, it is a lesson and an encouragement for us. We have in our great God exactly what we need. So God's strength is necessary. God's strength is sufficient. Thirdly, God's strength is effective. 
What does God's strength do? What is the result? And of course, the assumption is that it would result in us walking in a manner worthy of him, that we would be, that we would be fully pleasing to him, that we would be bearing fruit and increasing in his knowledge. But, but in particular, what does Paul point about as the ultimate goal of that? Well, the first thing is that it produces endurance. There's a direct correlation here between all power and all endurance. Again, we're strengthened with all power for all what? Endurance. So the all power matches the all endurance. The power of God enables believers to endure anything. Anything. There is nothing that can happen to you on this earth that is beyond the power of God. Nothing. And that should bring great hope to us. Any situation, all situations that we encounter throughout our walk in this life are provided are, are provided with the power needed to face them. So what this does is whatever you're facing now, God's power is enough for you to endure. You will make it through if you look to the power that he has. He will not leave you without the power that's needed. It also helps us to frame our mindset for the future. I don't know what tomorrow brings. None of you know what tomorrow brings. Only the Lord knows what tomorrow brings. How should we approach the future? Should we, you know, there are lots of concerning things going on. You know, read just recently that Russia has gotten out of this nuclear Triton, this nuclear agreement with, uh, with the U.S. And, uh, you know, you read some people and it's like, this is it. You know, we're back to the Cold War and mutually assured destruction and all of that type of stuff. You know, we, we look forward and... And maybe we went to the doctor and, and the doctor said, there's been some concerning things here. I need to do some more tests. We look at financial markets and we look at our investment portfolios. We look at our bank accounts. You go to the store and you see how much eggs cost. Like all of these things can heap upon themselves and you think, man, you know, are things going to get better? And the answer is, Listen, you've got the power of God at your disposal so that you can endure. No matter what's happening now, no matter what the future may bring, God's strength is effective so that you would have all endurance. And then second, it produces patience. The second is patience. Now, I think to some extent we will agree, yes, I know that God gives me the power I need. Yes, I know that I can endure. But where we begin to fall short is we say, well, I I don't want to endure that long. We're very impatient with our circumstances. This is a struggle for many of us. If anything, we are prone to impatience. I mean, and part of that is fed by the fact that we live in a society that is instant gratification. You know, you want something, boom, there it is. You order, you order something, it shows up at your doorstep the next day. I remember when, when COVID hit and, and things were changing and everything, and, you know, I'm an Amazon Prime member because I buy lots of stuff from Amazon for the church and different things like that, and I was getting upset that I wasn't getting things in two days. I mean, how dare they? 
We're so impatient. This was a major problem for the Israelites. You know what happened in Exodus 32? Moses goes up on the mountain. There's this lightning storm, this cloud, roarings and thunderings, fire on the mountain. And the children of Israel look at Aaron and they say, where's Moses? It's been too long. We don't know what's come of him. Make us what? Gods. I think this is illustrative of the fact that impatience often leads to idolatry. Impatience leads us to turn away from the source of all strength and to try to create the strength ourselves. Patience is to be a virtue of the believer. Look at what is said in Psalm 130. What does the psalmist say he will do? I what? Wait for the Lord. I mean, how often do we do that? Or how often do we say in our prayers, Lord, please fix this right away. Notice what he says. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Or Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is what kind of redemption? Plentiful. It's sufficient. It's enough. Jesus describes how his people are going to suffer and they're going to be delivered up by not the people that you would think of, not their enemies, but by who? Parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And they'll even put some of them to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But notice what the promise is. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your what? Endurance. You will gain your lives. Paul speaks of how God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing. Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will Give eternal life. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that we're not to be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and what? Patience. Inherit the promises. Patience is the fruit of faith. We are willing to wait for God to act because we believe that he will complete his promises. We take him at his word. We trust what he's saying. And what is amazing here is God is not so cruel as to command patience without providing the means to be patient. And that means is through his power that we would grow more and more in dependence on God's power so that we can be more and more patient, so that we can wait on him more and more. The power of God is the key to patience. So this Strength is effective to bring endurance, to bring patience. And the final effect is that of joy. When we respond to the circumstances of life with patience, endurance, patience, endurance, the result 
is joy. Now we have to understand what joy is. I think sometimes we read that word joy and we think, oh, just walking down life and always so happy and up. I mean, that's obviously not the case. Jesus himself mourned. He was grieved greatly at Lazarus' tomb in the garden. You know what the most common psalm in the Psalter is? A psalm of lament. And yet these psalms, Jesus himself, even though they walked through difficulties and had lament that didn't take joy fully away from them. Joy does not mean that there will be sadness or mourning, but it does mean that we can have an overall outlook of joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances because we're confident in God's promises. We patiently endure the outcome of our faith, the glory that is not comparable to our current situations. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. I, I, he's writing and saying he's certain that the sufferings of this present age are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul puts it another way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He speaks of this joy as a treasure we hold in jars of clay. What is that treasure? That the surpassing power belongs to who? God, not us. And so when that is the treasure, the power of God working within us, then we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. This is a wonderful hope that Paul was praying, that as we are strengthened, we can even face the most difficult circumstances and still have joy. I had the opportunity to attend uh, Chuck Rumley's mother's funeral Monday, and she was a, a wonderful testimony of God's grace. Her and her husband spent many years um, as missionaries in the Philippines. Chuck grew up in the Philippines uh, for some of his uh, uh, young life as a missionary kid, and one of the things that you could see, because she had faced difficulties and problems and, and circumstances and she was 93 or 94 years old and you know I, I know at 40 like sometimes I sleep wrong and I think wow I just want to die this pain is so awful right I can't imagine what it's like at 94 but one of the things I always remember in the videos and seeing her is that she just she had a joy about her 94 years in a sin-cursed world and she still had joy that's only the result of the power of God. So I'd like to close with one of the minor prophets, Habakkuk. At the end of his prophecy, he writes a psalm. And at the end of that psalm, he says this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So this is an agrarian society. So everything that he's saying here is absolutely devastating. This was essentially the end of life in Israel. That's what he's describing. 
if all that happens, yet I will what? Rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Why? God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And then he ends it to the quartermaster with stringed instruments. What a testimony of what Paul is praying here. That we could face the loss of everything and still rejoice because our strength is not in ourselves. It is in our God. So may we grow in God's strength as Paul prays for these Colossian believers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the power that you provide in Christ, in the gospel that you give to us, Lord, that we would be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Father, may we live these things out in dependence upon your strength. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.